Let's read Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Epaphrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. What should we do when life feels empty and even bitter? 
Walter Stace was a British philosopher. He actually became a, pro a professor at Princeton University in the United States. In 1948, Walter Stace wrote an extraordinary article. He was wrestling with the implications of people abandoning belief in God. And he admitted that the chaotic, bewildered state of the modern world was largely due to a loss of faith. This is what he said happens when God and religion are abandoned. He said this, Since the world is not ruled by a spiritual being, but rather by blind forces, there cannot be any ideals, moral or otherwise, in the universe outside of us. Our ideals, therefore, must proceed only from our own minds. They are our own inventions. Thus, the world which surrounds us is nothing but an immense spiritual emptiness. It is a dead universe. We do not live in a universe which is on the side of our values. It is completely indifferent to them. And he continued, logically, if the scheme of things is purposeless and meaningless, then the, our life is purposeless and meaningless too. Everything is futile. All effort is in the end worthless. A man may still pursue disconnected ends, money, fame, art, science, and may gain pleasure from these things, but his life is hollow at the centre. Hence the dissatisfied, disillusioned, restless spirit of modern man. What are we to do when life feels empty? When we feel that something isn't working deep down, uh, or there's an empty space in our lives, you know, it cannot remain. If we look at the really big things in our life, the origin, where we came from, our purpose, what are we here for, our identity, who are we, our future, where are we going? If we find there's an empty space there, we cannot bear it and we try to fill it. We're all trying to fill the void. There is an aching sense of emptiness and we want it to be filled. We don't know how to sort out our own hearts. What do we do when life feels empty? Now, today we're starting a short series in the book of Ruth. Uh, Claire just read that first chapter for us. It's a fantastic story. Some say it's the first short story in all of literature, and we will find that it is a love story. And who doesn't like a good love story with a happy ending? But, you know, like all great stories, this one starts with a lack. There's a lack. And you know how this kind of thing works. A lonely king sets out to look for a wife and the tale ends with a wedding. Or a village is cruelly oppressed by bandits and they search for a warrior who can save them. Or a poor boy and his mother are starving and he buys some beans at the market which turn out to be magic beans and he grows a beanstalk. Well, you know the kind of story. Now, the book of Ruth is one such tale. It is written so that we can enjoy the story. It's also written so that we can identify with some of the characters. C.S. Lewis said, we read to know that we are not alone. That's why we read stories, to know that we're not alone. And in other words, by reading, we can find people we can identify with. We can find companions. But Ruth is more than just a story. It is also true, it is historical, it's rooted in history. The writer is careful to note at the start of the book, at, right at the beginning and at the end, that this story of one family's tragedy is actually uh, 
a, t- a triumph that occurred in history because it's stitched into the greatest story in the world, the family tree of Jesus Christ, the Saviour. And that's how the story's going to end. But we are getting ahead of ourselves here. Before we can fully get to the happy ending, we need to taste the tragedy. And that's what we're doing this afternoon. We're going to spend most of our time looking at Naomi's experience of emptiness and even bitterness to help us answer this question again. What are we to do when life feels empty and bitter? Chapter one unfolds in three stages and each one reveals something about our emptiness. So my three points this afternoon are emptiness experienced, expressed, but expectant. Experienced, experience of emptiness, expressed what we do to express it, but also expectant how we are to live within it. So first of all, uh, emptiness experienced. Verse one begins, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now this rooted in history, the period of the judges was a time after the Israelites had come out from Egypt. You remember the wonderful exodus where they escaped from their oppressors, they escaped from Pharaoh. God led them through the wilderness. And after 40 years of of living as desert nomads, they entered the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But all wasn't plain sailing. They didn't fully possess the land. They didn't drive out all the inhabitants. They'd made a bit of a compromise with some of them. So the next period of Israel's history was decidedly rocky. It was a tough time, a time of kind of ups and downs. And, and, and the down times were really bad because the Israelites would often compromise with the false gods and live like their neighbours around them. And God would hand them over to that behaviour and give them over to the consequences of, the, of their choices. And they were often then experienced judgment and failure. And then they would cry out and God would rescue them and raise up a judge. And some of the judges are very famous indeed. You might remember Samson or Gideon or Deborah. And there are a number of other judges. So it's in that time period, this, this strange time in Israel's history, before they got a king and while they were living in this spiritually difficult period. Uh, that's where this family story begins. And it says in verse 1, a man from Bethlehem, which you might have heard of if you've ever been to a carol service, a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now that shows you that it is desperate times. Moab was historically an enemy of the Israelites. It's not a friendly place to go. It's not where the average Israelite family decides to go on holiday. So they're leaving their home in Bethlehem to try and find a new life in Moab. This is a classic case of, of people from a, 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 a difficult background trying to f- migrate. This is an immigrant's story. And they go to live in Moab. And there's kind of an irony built in here because the name Bethlehem literally means in the Hebrew language, house of bread, Bethlehem. So they go, the house of bread has got no food in it. So they're gonna go and live somewhere else. And they're desperate. And we get the names of the family. The husband is called Elimelech and the, and the wife is Naomi and they are two sons. So we're already in, in a tough place. But then disaster strikes because death comes quickly. Verse 3 signals that there's a change here. And what do we find? Elimelech died. And so Naomi is left with her two sons, a widow in a foreign country. But it doesn't end there. So they, they, they manage to marry local women two of the girls from the Moabite community, 
Orpah and Ruth. But then tragedy strikes again. After 10 years, both the sons die. And we don't know why. It doesn't say. Life was very hard in, in, the, in the, the period, second millennial, millennium BC. They just died. And, and verse 5 is probably about as understated as you can get for a, a, a statement of absolute tragedy. If you look at this, Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Left alone without her two sons and her husband. Now, on, one, on the one hand, we can see why that would be so tragic to have lost your, your immediate family within a period of 10 years. But there are other deeper problems for Naomi that, that are, come from the background of this story. You see, the, the ancient world was a man's world. And a woman such as Naomi, without a husband or sons, has been deprived of all her security, all her future. She has nothing left. She's got pain and grief at the loss of loved ones, but that's also compounded with this loss of identity. Who is she now? In her culture, her value that comes from her identity is as a wife and as a mother. So she's lost her security. She's lost her definition of worth. She's lost a future that she's looking forward to the blessings of old age with surrounded with grandchildren. And in 10 years, it's all been snatched away. So what do we do when life feels empty and bitter? Notice, first of all, two things that Naomi does not do. Firstly, she doesn't blame herself. She doesn't blame her own guilt, her own sin. She doesn't look at herself and say, oh, it must be something I did that brought this upon me. And neither does the author of the book. There's no hint in our text that the famine was caused because of the judgment of God or that God judged them because they shouldn't have left Israel and gone to Moab or that the marriages to Moabite women were, were condemned by God or punished by him. It simply doesn't say any of that. If you wanted to think that, you'd have to read it in. And plenty of later uh, scholars and readers have done so. But the author leaves all such questions in the background. Why? I think because in life, often, the reasons why we've got suffering and pain are unclear. We, we just don't know. They're not at all clear. There's a mystery about it. There's a mystery about the trouble that you experience in your life. Now, there are times in the Bible where Scripture connects a specific sin with a specific bit of suffering. There are times, but not regularly, and certainly not always. Much of the time in the Bible, suffering and pain happen, and we don't know why. And we have to avoid, therefore, being like Job's counsellors. If you know the book of Job, Job starts off the book very prosperous and healthy with a great family. And soon it's all taken away from him. And he's literally left sitting on the smoking ruins of his house, scraping off the, the, his boils with a piece of broken pot. And his three friends turn up. And basically what they spend most of the book doing is saying, come on, Job, it must be your fault. Think of something you've done wrong. And Job says, honestly, I don't think I deserved it. Just don't know. Let's not be like Job's counsellors. Naomi doesn't say doesn't blame it on herself. And secondly, Naomi doesn't, doesn't demand an answer from God that somehow means he has to account for his actions. Now, I'm not saying that we should never ask God why. And I'm certainly not saying that we should 
button up our suffering and accept it and never complain. In fact, this text is going to show us how to complain. But Naomi doesn't insist on God accounting for himself. She doesn't say, you owe me an answer. I demand that you give me the reasons, God, why you have permitted this suffering in my life. She's willing to let those questions go unanswered and still not tie her suffering to her own guilt. And I just wonder what we're inclined to feel and do when life goes wrong, when it feels empty and even bitter. Do we tend to think we must be at fault or do we tend to want to blame God for it? She does neither. That's emptiness experienced. Secondly, we move on to emptiness expressed. In verse 7, we pick up the rest of the story and we find that this is going to be a journey. That it, uh, With the two daughters-in-law, Naomi leaves the place where she's been living. She sets out on the road that will take them back to the land of Judah. But this next section, which takes us right through to verse 19, isn't a travel narrative. Um, it's actually the setting for a dialogue. It's a conversation between Naomi and the two daughters-in-law. And it, it puts before us the intense emotional experience that Naomi has gone through. Remember, this is a woman who has lost all the things in her life that provided her with security, and she doesn't know why. So what does she do? She expresses it. She expresses it. It's raw. It's unedited. It's powerful. There is anguish here. And this too belongs in our Bible and it belongs in our lives. It belongs in your spiritual experience. When you go through emptiness, anguish, struggle, affliction, that we know how to deal with that loss by expressing it to trusted friends and in the presence of God to him. So let's follow some of this painful dialogue. And it's all about the question, where are you going to go? Who's going back to Moab and who's going to go to Judah? Verse 8, Naomi says to the two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. See, Naomi here is doing the right thing. At great personal cost, It's heartbreaking for her. These are her only two remaining family, her only two companions. She loves these two younger women, but she she wants the best for them. And so she knows that the best for them, humanly speaking, is for them to go back to their, their own mother, go back home and rebuild their lives there. Because Naomi has got nothing to offer them. And as she tells them this, she prays for them. She says, may the Lord do this for you. May the Lord do this for you. You see, in spite of everything, she still has faith. And then as she's speaking and trying to hold it together, the emotion starts to break through because they kiss her. Verse, she kisses them goodbye. Verse 9. And, and I suppose as the reality of losing them breaks through, they all weep aloud. And the, the, the women say, we, we're not going. We will, we will go with you back to your people. Naomi pushes back. She says, look, just think about this. Am I going to have any more sons? Literally, she says, do I still have any sons in me? Remember, it was a man's world. She's saying, I've got no security to give you. I can't provide you with a husband. 
I've got nothing for you. I've got no home. And then she pushes the argument even further. It starts to get a little bit kind of absurd. She says, I'm too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and then I gave birth to sons, say, nine months' time. Would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? There's just no way. It can't possibly happen. Now, this is, seems kind of strange to us because of, because of our culture. But what's going on here is, is a principle in the law of that time, in the Israelite law code, called the leveret marriage. If a, a, there was a family and the, the husband died, leaving a widow, it was his brother's responsibility to make sure that that widow had a, a child and an heir. It's called leveret marriage. It, it was a way of granting her security for the future. But Ruth is effectively saying, look, in this context, I can't possibly help you girls. You must go back. And then things go a little bit further, and I think it shows us the raw emotion of it in what she says in verse 13. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. The Lord's hand has turned against me. That is a, a complaint And it's a bitter one. She clearly says here that the cause, in some sense, of her calamity is none other than God himself, the Lord. This is the anguish cry of a person whose life is overwhelmed and seems like it's over. She must return home alone. And she won't drag Orpah and Ruth along with her into hopelessness. Now, later on in the story, when they do get back to Bethlehem, that complaint gets filled out a little bit more. And here we see Naomi really pouring it out and expressing how she feels. Because when they do get to Bethlehem, there's a buzz in the town and people are seeing them come in and people start to say, hey, it's Naomi, she's come back. You know, she's been gone all these years. And there's an excitement and people are keen to see her and they come out and the women say, can this be Naomi? And she replies, don't call me Naomi, verse 20. Because Naomi means pleasant, sweet, lovely name. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You see the depth of how she's feeling there? What are we to do when life feels empty? And bitter. We learn three things here from, from Naomi. The first is to acknowledge our pain, to acknowledge our pain. You see, she brings it honestly out into the open. And scripture commends this. This is not Christianity is not stoicism, it's not grin and bear it, you know, stiff up a lip, button it up, keep it all tight inside. Christianity is totally different from that. The Bible is absolutely realistic about life in the fallen world, life that hurts, lives that are broken, painful, confusing. Trouble in the Bible really is trouble. It's not just an illusion that you have to work through. It's awful. You often think it shouldn't be like this. And so Naomi acknowledges the pain. She brings it out into the presence of loved ones and she brings it into the presence of God himself. And then she complains. And that's the second thing we need to learn to do, is make a complaint. To complain to God. 
It might sound a bit um, presumptuous. Some would say it's, it's impious. But the Old Testament is full of people who make a reverent complaint before God and they bring their case before him and say, Lord, this is happening to me. And to lay it before him. Job did. Jeremiah did. Naomi does. She brings her case before God. And the author of the book takes the complaint seriously. She doesn't get slapped down and told to suck it up. You see, friends, it's not a sin to struggle with the idea of God's faithfulness when your life is going wrong. It's not a sin to struggle with the idea of God's loving you or him being faithful. In fact, it's maybe inevitable that we struggle with such things. And this kind of complaint is actually the proper thing to do in certain circumstances. If you read the Psalms, half of the Psalms are laments. They're, 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 they're sad. They're the blues. They're, they're songs about life going wrong and bringing it before God and saying, Why, O oh Lord, how long before you rise up? Why do you, why do you stay silent? Let me ask you, have you learned how to do this in your spiritual life? It's key to our growth. It's key to our survival. That we don't just acknowledge the pain, but that we make a complaint. But she doesn't give up on God. The third thing we see is that she continues to obey him. She continues to show love to other people. You know, the heart of God. Of God's law is, is love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. Her attitude to Orpah and Ruth is simply loving and simply heroic. That she would say, no, you must go home. I don't have anything to offer you. It is sacrificial and loving loyalty. And she doesn't give up on God. For who else do we have? Where else can we go? Nick Walterstorff uh, is, is an emeritus professor of, of philosophy at Yale University. Very, very brilliant man and a, and a profound Christian. Walterstorff lost his son, Eric, to an accident. I think it was a climbing accident when Eric was 24 years old. And it was heartbreaking. And in many ways, he, he never got over it. He wrote a, a very powerful memoir called... Lament for a son. And in that book, he, he describes how a friend came to him and challenged him to give up his faith. And this is what Nick said. Uh, Why don't you just scrap this God business, says one of my bitter suffering friends. It's a rotten world. You and I have been shafted, and that's that. And Nick ponders then. He says, I'm pinned down. When I survey this gigantic, intricate world... I cannot believe that it just came about. I don't mean that I, I have some good arguments for its being made, and that I believe in the arguments. I mean that this conviction wells up irresistibly within me when I contemplate the world. And when I read the New Testament and look into the material surrounding it, I'm convinced that the man, Jesus of Nazareth, was raised from the dead, and that he was the Son of God. And then he says this, Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. Faith is a footbridge 
You don't know if it will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you feel like you've had to walk out over the chasm. You're wondering if this faith is going to hold you. But what Naomi finds is that it's not really her faith, but God himself who holds her up. But that's the position we find her in as the chapter comes to a close. She feels lost. She feels bereft. Empty. She feels utterly alone. And actually, she's so lost in her grief that she isn't seeing straight. And you know, we can be like that too. Because the story isn't over yet. And God has already begun to answer her prayers. Did you notice that? Just look back with me again as we come to this third point about emptiness being expectant. We've been asking, what are we to do when life feels empty and bitter? And what we find in our text is that just as Naomi is complaining, God has already begun to answer because Ruth has spoken. Look back with me at our passage and see what Ruth says in verse 16. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Now listen to this. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now that is one of the most inspirational speeches in the entire Bible, perhaps in the entire history of, the lit- of literature. See what Ruth is saying here? I am with you to the end. I know you've got nothing to offer me. I'm committed. I'm in. Not just to follow you to wherever you go, but to stay with you and to watch over you and be by your side until you die. And then I will be buried with you. And I make this promise in the presence of your God, the living God, the Lord. One scholar, Phyllis Tribble, writes this about this this speech. Ruth stands alone. She possesses nothing. No God has called her. No deity has promised her blessing. No human being has come to her aid. She lives and chooses without a support group. And she knows that the fruit of her decision may well be the emptiness of rejection or death. Consequently, not even Abraham's leap of faith surpasses this decision of Ruth's. And there's more. Not only has Ruth broken with her family, her country and her faith, she has also reversed traditional allegiance. A young woman has committed herself to the life of an older woman rather than the search for a husband. One female has chosen another female in a world where life depends upon men. There is no more radical decision in all the memories of Israel. What an amazing moment. Just when Naomi is at her absolute depths, Ruth steps forward and makes this speech. And Naomi doesn't know how to handle it. She just goes silent. She's so lost at this point. It's incredible. But you know, there is actually a more radical decision in the Bible. It's not in the Old Testament. It's in the New. And it comes when we think about someone who's actually even a better Ruth. And his name is Jesus. Think about the choices that Jesus made to 
commit himself to his people, even unto death. Death on a cross. Choosing to suffer. Choosing abjection. Choosing humiliation. Choosing rejection. All for the joy set before him. See, Jesus didn't just make the promise. He deliberately went to death for you and me. So that our suffering could be reversed. Our wounds could be healed. Our emptiness can be filled. Our brokenness put back together. All because Jesus took that upon himself. He was broken so that ultimately we won't have to be. And that's why when you feel empty, you shouldn't just express it. You should also be expectant. Because you don't know what God is going to do through it in your life and in the lives of other people. You just don't know. Do you? But you do know that the story isn't over. And remember where these people came from. The start of the book. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. And you're thinking, what? That's a funny detail. It is a funny detail. And the author says it twice. Because he wants to make a point. Attentive readers of the Bible who lived a couple of hundred years later, will know who came from there. Who was an Ephrathite from Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah? Well, it was King David, the great king, the one who who was the hope of the nation, the one who enjoyed God's favour, the one who God made all his promises focus on King David and the line of King David that would have a ruler in it who would rule the world in peace, harmony and justice. King David was from Bethlehem. But we know better than that, don't we? We know someone else who came from Bethlehem, who was actually a Judahite in the line of David. Jesus. So what this book is going to show us, is not only is the story not over from Naomi's point of view and Ruth's point of view, it's that their little lives fit into this great story that leads to David and then to great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And so these people in this moment of absolute desperation and darkness are actually going to be included in the family tree of the saviour of the world. You don't know what God is going to do with your suffering. But you do know that the story isn't over. So what do we do when life feels empty and bitter? Acknowledge the pain. Don't pretend. Acknowledge it. It hurts. Make your complaint to your trusted friends and in the presence of God. Continue to walk in obedience to him and wait for his deliverance. Let's pray.